It's every election ever and beer. And I'm not Scott. But I do have Eddie with me. Eddie, what's up? Hey, how's it going? It's good, man. It's weird doing this without Scott. He's taking care of the entire family and said he didn't want to get me sick, which I appreciated. So we're going to have to carry it without him. I feel like nobody's going to say anything inappropriate now, so maybe you can jump in on that. That probably is correct, so I'll try to work my best on that. Although getting in the mind of Scott is something that actually terrifies me, but but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, I thought maybe you, I could help fill in by drinking two beers. Yeah, you, I, I knew you could handle that. Um, I'm getting so much beer flack lately that I should try to drink two as well, just to see, <laughs> you know, work my way towards actually liking it. And I, I am liking it now, which is which is something that I didn't necessarily expect, but I'm enjoying this very much. Not just talking about presents, yes. but actually drinking a beer. Yes. My wife is actually not as excited as me about that, but still. <laughs> So, I don't know if you have any special beers today. I don't think you do. I know you're working on some new recipes, um, but I have a Southern Gothic by Sierra Nevada. I don't know if you've had that. It's an unfiltered Pilsner, um, so a little bit more complex than Scott's Miller Lite, but it's actually a really good beer. It's it's a light beer. Um, it's unfiltered, so it's a little bit raw, as they say on the, on the label, but I, I can definitely taste that. It's definitely not um, just your plain macro brew, but it's a good beer. And uh, I like it. Sierra Nevada makes some awesome beers. I love Sierra Nevada beers. Yeah, and this seemed to fit. I mean, we're still dealing with Virginians in the White House, and and so I thought I'd have a Southern Gothic to kind of celebrate that. And, you know, Sierra Nevada is a pioneer in the craft beer business. You know, the craft beer industry, they were one of the very first. Yeah, you don't even really think of them as craft beer anymore, but, but that's true. Yeah. What are you drinking? All right, I, for the last, I guess it's been about a month now, Yep. I saved one Thomas Jefferson Blood of Tyrants Pale Ale because I knew I wanted to I wanted to give it to someone really special. <laughs> I can't wait for the punchline of this. So today I decided that that person was me. Who's more special than yourself? Right? I've got the very last beer in the Blood of Tyrants batch. That's possibly true, although I'm still searching for the other one you gave me. So it could be worth a lot <laughs> one day. If somebody finds the it. Lost, <laughs> the lost bottle. I, I, I smell a Nick Cage movie coming out. Right? Did you even tell the audience about that? I think we kept it secret from them because it was so humiliating. They know, and listen, humiliation is not beneath me as we've found out. In fact, one of my friends from work who listens to this says, man, you really got to work on getting your manhood back after this show. It's true. You know what I think happened? I think I think you found out it wasn't a cider and threw it away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I lost that, air quotes. I did not lose it on purpose. It's a really, really good beer, and I'm glad you're getting to enjoy another one because you did all the hard work, so you deserve it. I love it. And uh, after I'm done with this one, I'm going to pour... One of the Hairs Porters. Oh, so you're you're drinking strictly Eddie beer today. It's all Founding Fathers homebrew today. We're back with another election and and more Andrew Jackson, which by the way proved to be very controversial on Twitter. <laughs> yes, one uh one crazy person does not believe it's okay to talk about Andrew Jackson or beer. Exactly, both both are toxic 
toxically masculine, however you would say that. That was inside. That, that, we find some characters on Twitter, don't we? We do. And, and you know, I'm actually really nice to people on that Twitter account, the Every Election and Beer account, because I need to be. Had they said something like that on Politic, it wouldn't have been as nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, what are we going to do? Where are we going to start with this? All right, I'm going to start with a quote Okay. from Andrew Jackson from after he left office. Okay. This is about what Andrew Jackson regretted when he left office. He said, quote, I have only two regrets, that I didn't shoot Henry Clay and that I didn't hang John C. Calhoun. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. This guy, he really sounds more and more like Trump the more I hear about him. There's, there's a lot of opinion pieces that came out uh, between the— 2016 election and now comparing Trump to Andrew Jackson and there's yeah. so much that's the same but I think it's really it's really the Jacksonian democracy movement that is so much like now yeah and there's good reason for that when you think in terms of the fact that when Andrew Jackson comes along into American politics it's a time where the proliferation of newspapers is just off the chain. It's just they're everywhere all of a sudden, and everybody has all this new information, yeah. and there's so much content being created. And that's much like in 2016 when you have all this new social media and people are finding out all this new information for the first time. The access is just just unparalleled. Yep. Our access to the unfiltered whole truth and nothing but the truth is unparalleled. And I think the idea of a person who fights for the ordinary man and yeah. stands up to the elites and wants to shoot them or hang them or, you know, whatever uh, Trump yeah. may do. Uh, thankfully, Trump is actually toned down from that. He just wants to, you know, mostly call them names. But it's the same idea. It's the idea that, oh, look at this guy who's standing up for the common person. Yeah, so let me ask you this question, and I don't want to knock you off track, and, and maybe we can circle back to it, but did you get that same kind of rhetoric about Andrew Jackson that he was really beneath the office of president while he was in office? Oh, 100%. Okay. Uh, did, you get, did you get the article that I sent you on Gmail? I did see that. Yeah, I have not read it yet, but I, I need to. Oh, man, not doing your homework. Come yeah. on now. I'm really bad about that. I rely on you. You know there's going to be a test. I know, and I'm going to fail it, but, you know, at least I'll like beer at that point, so we'll be good. Well, well the the test is going to be is going to be a contest between you and Scott. So oh, I'm one good. of you will pass and one of you will fail. Yeah, I'm good. I, I like that step grading like that. Well, I'm going to have to grade Scott on a curve because you edit the episodes, which means that you've heard each one 17 times, and Scott's only heard them once. That is a good point. We'll have to discuss how we handle that going forward because I do edit the episodes, and so I could actually <laughs> affect how you sound too. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was upset that he didn't shoot Henry Clay, which, as we talked about, was one of the, the nemesis's was one of the nemesi in his first election loss to John Quincy Adams. And then also he didn't like John C. Calhoun very much, which was he not his vice president? He was. He was vice president. But you're going to find out when we talk about the election of 1832 right now, you are going to find out why Andrew Jackson hates John C. Calhoun. All these people 
on Andrew Jackson's hate list is that, that's somewhere I just would not have wanted to be with just the little I know about him so far. Really? I mean, the thought of saying anything negative about Andrew Jackson really should have scared these people more. Yeah, you you wonder what they were thinking. Maybe maybe they again just thought that they were above him and could say whatever they wanted, but still yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, they all came out of it alive, so maybe yep. maybe Andrew had um had tempered a little bit by this time. Yep, true. Although the guy who tried to assassinate him did not get off so easy. See, and I don't even know that story. I'm sure we're going to hear about it. Next time, eight election of 1836. I'll, okay. I'll talk about the assassination attempt. Awesome. Sounds good. That's what we call a teaser. Today, we're going to talk about, I want to start with three things that happened in Andrew Jackson's first term. Three major things which greatly affect what is going to happen in 1832. All right. The first one is the Petticoat Affair. Have you heard of the Petticoat Affair? I have not. Excellent. We're going to talk about the Petticoat Affair. Then we're going to talk about the nullification crisis. And then we're going to talk about Jackson's veto of the National Bank Charter. All three of these things are going to play a major role in what's going to happen in the election of 1832. Sounds good. And they're also going to do a great deal to explain Jackson's antipathy towards Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun. Oh, so he's going to hate Clay even more after all this. Oh, and how, and how. As we go through these things, what you are going to be seeing is the events that caused the spark that created the Whig Party. Which is going to be prominent in this century. Yes, yes. Yep. The Whig Party during this election, there is no Whig Party, but it is nascent. What creates it happens now. It just isn't given a name until after. Gotcha. So right now, it's sort of a proto-Whig Party. All right, so let's start let's start with the petticoat affair. So what happens? Andrew Jackson becomes president. Oh, this is sort of tangential, but I just have to mention it. Yeah, let's get into it. Lots of our listeners who are big Trump supporters really like Andrew Jackson. But interestingly, his first order of business, the very first thing that he wanted Congress to do was to abolish the Electoral College. Wow. Or to at least pass an amendment that would then go to the states because that's the process. But he wanted a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College because it's Jacksonian democracy. Yeah, now was that his idea or was that the man behind the man asking that that happen? You know, I don't know that Van Buren had anything to do with that. Um, I think that's really a Jackson thing. I think the results of the election of 1824 right. stuck in his craw for the rest of his life. I could see that. I mean, think about it. If somebody like Hillary, who won the the popular vote, gets elected at some point again, I could see that sticking in her craw, <laughs> and she would want to oh. get rid of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can see it stuck in the Democrats' craw. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. You you can hardly track down a Democrat candidate who isn't who hasn't said, let's abolish the Electoral College. That's true. They all seem to be in favor of that, for sure. 
All right, so the um, the petticoat affair. Uh, Jackson becomes president. All of his supporters come to Washington, and I mean, nobody in Washington has ever seen anything like it. They roll in and they're in their little Beverly Hillbillies cars with Granny on top, and <laughs> and the D.C. elite are beside themselves over the supporters of Andrew Jackson. One more deplorable than the next. You can almost there's there's got to be a great scene of them all like gasping, all the all the women in their expensive dresses and the men with their white gloves, and these people just pull up. This white trash uh, has been elected president. They've got to be freaking out. Oh, man. And I mean, his supporters just trash the place. Oh, wow. It's pretty nasty. So uh, Jackson comes in, and he's going to be the reform guy. Like I told you, one of the things he wants to do, get rid of the Electoral College. Right. He wants to tear down uh, institutions that seem old to them at the time, but now— all these years later seem pretty new. I mean, it's been almost 200 years since all this. Mm-hmm. So one thing that Jackson does, he just guts the executive branch of civil servants that he doesn't like. And and everybody is just beside them. The Washington elites are like, hey, that job is their birthright. You can't take their jobs away. But Jackson believes that it has to be refreshed. And there has to be turnover or else people are going to be corrupt if they if they are just entitled to these jobs always, no matter what. Yeah. I mean, and, and you put, you know, those ideas with today's kind of parties, and that's not a very Democratic party type idea. But I and honestly, it's not a very rhino type idea either. It's it's a very anti-establishment idea, obviously. An anti-establishment idea. But in my opinion. Uh, a good one because so many bureaucrats, you know, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but that's what people who work for the bureaucracy of the executive branch, too many of them don't understand that there's not actually any executive power vested in them. It is all the president's power. It just takes a giant apparatus for the president to exercise that power. Yeah, he or she has to delegate it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they're exercising the president's power. So the idea that the president can purge them and bring in whoever he wants actually makes perfect sense. Right. But they don't like it. But that— Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, whoever uh, wins the war to the victor, go the spoils. So obviously he doesn't have a choice. He has John C. Calhoun on his ticket with him. Because John C. Calhoun is the vice president, but he gets to pick other cabinet members. One of the cabinet members he chooses is Martin Van Buren to be secretary of state. Another one is John Eaton, who becomes the secretary of war. Well, what happens is, see, John Eaton is married to a woman of, what's the best way to say this? Questionable reputation. (laughs) (laughs) Dubious reputation. That is the best way to describe Margaret Eaton. So, you know, that's just not going to fly in D.C. society. Right, absolutely not. So John C. Calhoun's wife leads a shunning campaign to shun John Eaton's wife, Margaret. 
And so she is not invited into the cabinet wives' social circle. She's totally shunned from it. What a tragedy. Yes. You know, (laughs) it's almost unthinkable that we would even be talking about something this absurd. I mean, who even cares? But they did care. Andrew Jackson cared. Andrew Jackson was pissed. You can see why, right, from a psychological standpoint. You can see why he dealt with that his whole life. I mean, he dealt with someone insulting someone that he loved very much and lost in part because of that, and now he's seeing it happen again. I'm impressed. I'm impressed that you connected that to Rachel right away. I'm not a complete idiot. (laughs) I didn't connect it to Rachel right away until... Uh, H.W. Brands was like, remember Rachel? And I was like, oh, yeah. Clearly had to have impacted him. You got that right away. Well, you're going to do good on the test. Well, thank you. Another person who got it right away, Martin Van Buren. So Martin Van Buren makes sure to to side with Andrew Jackson and to make sure that it is known that he does not support the shunning of Margaret Eaton. We got to talk about this, I'm sure, next episode. But I'm imagining how tall is Martin Van Buren, by the way? Tall is he? Yeah, it can be very Man, tall. That's a tough question, but I'm gonna guess. Uh, got to be he short. He looks pretty short to me. I think he's like five six. I bet. A little portly. He's got to be. This guy strikes me as the complete, you know, basically epitome of political cunning in a person. He he seems to me to be always postured, and he's very good at playing the political game. You can tell that already. Oh, yeah. Are you thinking the Napoleon complex? Uh, a little bit, but, I mean, this guy just knows how to play politics, and it's new. He's almost creating playing politics. Yeah, I have some kind of category for him. He's, like, my favorite something. I can't remember what all my categories are because there are so many. But I can't I am, either. If that's on the test, I'm going to fail. <laughs> I am a huge fan yeah. of Martin Van Buren. How tall did I guess he was? You just said pretty short. I'm guessing, like, five seven. Yeah, I think I said 5'6", which I just Googled it, and it says 5'6", okay. or whatever that's There worth. you go. Perfect. Uh, sideburns that are just... The best ever. ...out of this world. Yeah. Maybe, possibly the best sideburns of anyone ever to serve as president. It's It's got to be. I mean, I would think. That's, that's what he's known for. That's what I knew him for above anything else. So that tells you how much I know about the president. That was back in the day what I knew him for, too, were just those outrageous sideburns. But um, he actually lived long enough to be photographed. So there are actual photographs of Martin Van Buren. Oh, okay. And then I think probably everybody after. But anyway, as you were saying, he knows how to play the political game. And one thing he's doing early is he knew which side to take as far as the shunning of a cabinet member's wife. Definitely. And uh, presumably because he like you, immediately connected it to Rachel, yep. who at this time had just died. Yeah, yeah. And and Jackson said she had a broken heart from this exact same treatment that now he's watching Margaret Eaton get. Mm-hmm. So this is strike one for John C. Calhoun. Because of his wife, basically. Yes. Yes, it's because of his wife, but also uh, he's not willing to do anything to ameliorate the situation. Because we all know, by the way, how much control men have over their wives. Right, right. Yeah, you just tell them how to behave, and then they do it. Immediately. We are in so (laughs) much trouble if our wives ever listen to this. 
<laughs> make sure you cut that. No, it's lucky that uh, my wife listened to like the first seven minutes of the first episode, and she was like, yeah, I think I get the point of that show. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's strike one, the petticoat affair. And that really makes Martin Van Buren Jackson's go-to guy, the guy that he trusts, the guy that he wants to bring into the fold. Because he doesn't actually know Martin Van Buren until they're working together in Washington. I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but he definitely knows how to get in with the boss. 100%. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Van Buren is like, in my opinion, Van Buren is a founding father's level political genius. Yeah, got it. The greatest genius of the Jacksonian era, for sure. All right. And he's already in with Jackson after this point. Yeah, now now he's Jackson's guy, and that's going to come back later in an important way. So the next thing that we get after the petticoat affair is the nullification crisis. You can ask me if I know anything about that. Do you? Uh, I know it was a Jeopardy question, but I don't even remember anything about it other than that. So no. <laughs> the nullification crisis is really interesting. It it starts with the tariff, or as um, I think it's the tariff of 1828, but as they call it in the South, the tariff of abomination. Tariffs at this time really... Uh, are a sectional problem. They tear the country in half because in the South, uh, most of your money is agricultural, and a lot of it comes from taking that agriculture, uh, mostly cotton, and sending it to foreign countries, and then the foreign countries pay for it. Got it. Well, if there's a tariff, then the foreign countries have to pay more for it, and then they'll go somewhere else for cotton, or they'll grow their own cotton rather than pay this huge tariff, right? That's still how it works, right. But if you go up north and they have you have in industry instead of agriculture, then the tariff is different because it stops people to being foreign countries from being able to compete with your industry. And so you make something and foreign countries can't compete with you and, like, dump cheap steel on the market because they don't want to pay the tariff. So the tariff protects you. Gotcha. And so uh, this tariff is tearing the countries apart. And South Carolina decides, you know what? Uh, The tariff is unconstitutional, and states are allowed to, should be allowed to, nullify acts of the federal government when they are unconstitutional. So it's like they believe that the state can veto federal legislation that's signed into law by the president. So South Carolina decides we want to try to nullify this, or we're going to actually take that legal position. Uh, Are they saying they can nullify the law just for their state, I'm assuming, so they just don't have to follow it? It's like one step from secession— it's like we're just gonna we're gonna do whatever we want. We don't believe that the federal government can order us to do that, so we're just nullifying it here, and we're not gonna do it. Yeah, I did not want to jump ahead of you, but but it just it seems like that, and maybe you'll get to this that this is like maybe the first 
many, many spark of what we're going to see when the Civil War starts to break apart, you know? I mean, it's, it's like yeah. the first mini step in this whole thing to say, wait a minute, we're going to do what we want. Yes, it is really the first uh, precedent, and it's notable that it's South Carolina that's having this problem. Yeah. We're only 30 years away that's what or I'm saying. so yeah. From, yeah, from the actual uh, secession from the Union. And I know and, nothing about the Civil War, but I think the first shots are really fired there too, right? Yes, Fort Sumter. When Andrew Jackson wins re-election, oh, oh, spoiler, in eighteen in the election of 1832, right after that, South Carolina claims that they are going to actually secede from the Union. And then two things happen. Congress passes a tariff more to the liking of South Carolina. It's a compromise tariff. Yeah. And they pass a bill that Andrew Jackson asked for, which authorizes Andrew Jackson to use the force of the federal troops to stop South Carolina from seceding from the Union. See, and I was about to ask you, like, where he fell on all of this, because it's kind of a tough position for him to be in. Yeah, it's a weird... It's sort of a weird paradox. You would maybe guess that Andrew Jackson would be pro-nullification. I guess what I'm struggling with is you would think someone like Andrew Jackson from Virginia, or sorry, from Tennessee, a Southerner, would sort of be in a tough position with another Southern state who obviously has the same kind of economy or similar economies as someone, something like Tennessee, and him saying, hey, I need authority to use the federal troops against a Southern state. Yeah, and he also is a guy who really strongly believes in states' rights. Yeah. But what you have to remember about Andrew Jackson is that his entire life has been spent fighting for the Union, right? 1776, he's, uh, during the American Revolution, he's a prisoner of war at age 14 to British troops. War of 1812... He's the hero who who stops Great Britain from, you know, it's the second Mer- American Revolution. And he is the hero of New Orleans who saves the Union. Yeah, got it. Andrew Jackson uh, believes that if the states are not a union, then he believes in states' rights, but he believes if there's no union— or that if states have the power to nullify the union, or if states have the power to leave the union, that some foreign power, or probably Great Britain, will destroy the country. Yeah, I could see that. And and everything that he's done in the past to kind of fight to have this country and to keep it together, I could see yeah. where he would want to kind of protect that. Yeah, totally. I mean... He's an interesting and complicated guy because in the next issue, he's going to be on the side of states' rights, and the guys from the other party are going to be on the other side. They're going to be on the side of the federal government. He's a guy that, to me, I think you you could say clearly there are bad things about this guy, and clearly he did some questionable things. And again, we're judging it through the lens of, of history. And he or, or anyone else in that time didn't have that, uh, you know, luxury. But still, 
he seems to be someone who really thinks with his heart and emotions and passion too. I mean, that that, that seems to be coming through to me. Oh yeah, man. I think I think it was Thomas Jefferson who um, uh, Andrew Jackson wrote him a letter when he was president and said, uh, "I'd like to have a job in your administration. I'm a great admirer and all this." And uh, Jefferson got the letter. And he told whoever he was with about it, and he said, oh, yeah, this Andrew Jackson, I would never give him a job. I remember when he was in the Senate, he could never even speak because he was just so angry all the time. His voice was choked off if he tried to say anything ever. Yeah, yeah, I remember us talking about that. So, yeah, he was uh, he was a man ruled by his passions for sure. Yeah. All right, so— um, nullification, Jackson uh, is totally against it. John C. Calhoun at Thomas Jefferson's birthday party comes out. John, John C. Calhoun is supporting it behind the scenes the whole time. Remember, he's a South Carolinian. Right. So he's behind the scenes supporting it the entire time. And Jackson suspects this, but he doesn't know for sure until Thomas Jefferson's birthday party when John C. Calhoun gets up and uh, makes a speech saying that uh, liberty is more important than union. Jackson gets up, he makes his own speech, union is more important than liberty because without the union you can't have liberty. Yeah, and then Calhoun is lucky he didn't challenge him to a duel right after that. Right, definitely. All right, so that's strike two for John C. Calhoun. All right, uh, the third issue I promised to talk about, the National Bank. Yep. The National Bank is seen by many as being unconstitutional. It's the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton. How much do you know about the National Bank? Uh, Very little. All right, I think that's probably pretty normal. Yeah. Uh, But the one thing that people probably everywhere know about the National Bank is the Supreme Court case, McCulloch versus Maryland, which everybody learned about in ninth grade civics. Yep. And then you actually have to read it again in law school. Yeah, I was going to say, and maybe they mentioned it in law school. Yeah. You know that the Supreme Court has ruled that the... The National Bank is constitutional under the Necessary and Proper Clause. And also, uh, as far as that case goes, that case also destroys the idea of nullification, which we just talked about, because it explicitly, um, the court explicitly states that the federal government is supreme over the state governments. Which is the reason that you actually learn that case in ninth grade civics, because you learn about the supremacy of the federal government over the state. Yeah. So we don't have to we don't have to say anymore. What does our federalism look like? Is it the federal government up here and the states down here? Are they side by side? Is it the states up top? And the you don't have to ask that because McCulloch versus Maryland answers that question. That's pulls us further and further away from an Articles of Confederation like country and more to a country that says, hey, if the federal government wants to preempt something, they have the authority to do that under the Constitution. That's right. Yep. 
And uh, who can we thank? I, I, I bet you know this one. Who can we thank for that decision in McCulloch versus Maryland that makes the federal government supreme over the states? Oh, I'm going to blow this one, I think. Is that Marshall? Yep, John Marshall. Okay. The, the Federalist Party is long gone, but wow, Marshall, all those years later, still there, Chief Justice of the United States, bringing down the decisions that strengthen the federal government. I mean, most of those decisions, if not all of them, came from him, I'm thinking. Yeah. Good work, John Adams. I don't know who appointed him to the Supreme Court, but... John Adams. There you go. Good work, John Adams. Now, Andrew Jackson would love to unilaterally get rid of the bank. He does not believe the bank is unconstitutional. He does not care what John Marshall has to say about its constitutionality. But obviously, he can't just unilaterally tear down the bank. Right. But the bank, like most government things, has to be rechartered. And the rechartering comes up, and Congress votes to recharter the National Bank. I mean, it's straight out of 2019, never Trump reactions to everything that Trump does. That's exactly what happens to Jackson when he vetoes the bank. Complete meltdown. Yes. They say that he thinks he's a king. That sounds familiar, too. Yes. Uh th- Trump and Jackson both have been drawn by the media as kings, like, you know, in a cartoony way. Yeah, yeah. Um, They've both been drawn as kings. That's what they started saying, that if they compared him to, like, Roman, um, Roman leaders who were out of control, I'm sure they would have compared him to Hitler and Mussolini and whoever else if those people had existed yet, but they hadn't. So is this is this where we start to get the the very very beginnings and rumblings of a new party? Yes, that's exactly right. The day that Andrew Jackson vetoes the National Bank is the day the Whig Party is born. Makes sense. They just don't know they're the Whig Party yet. And the Whig Party is going to be an interesting one because literally it is not an ideological party at all. No, no parties are really. I mean, when you see all the hypocrisy in politics, it blows your mind. And, and we all tweet about it like, oh, he's saying this now, but here's what he said five years ago. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the reason for that is because parties aren't ideological at all. Parties are organization. They're organizational. And and they're a fan of expediency, too. Whatever serves my goal right now is what I care about. Yeah, and that's what they exist for. And so uh, people have ideologies, but parties are a place for people to compromise their ideologies in order to, in order to gain more political traction. Yeah, so you compromise your ideology to be part of the party, and then the party helps you. And so that's the day the Whig Party is born. They just don't know it yet. The Whig Party is going to be a mess of different beliefs. The only unifying belief of the Whig Party is that 
Andrew Johnson or Andrew Jackson has usurped the American system and made himself king of America because he vetoed a bill. Yeah. So were these folks breaking out from, I guess, at that point, really, there were only Democratic Republicans at that point. They were just kind of ran the spectrum about how they felt about things. And so the folks breaking off to the Whig Party were, I guess, Democratic Republicans at one point, right? Just about everybody uh, was a Democratic Republican yeah. at one point. Now they're national Republicans. I got gotcha. you. They start to follow the, the Quincy Adams after he leaves office kind of Yes, philosophy. exactly. Yeah. And actually, the election of 1832, the one that we're talking about now, is the first election ever to have a legit official um, national conventions the way that we have them today. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that because I really know nothing about who ran against Andrew Jackson the second time around. Oh, this should be good then. Yeah. Guess who the first political party ever to hold an official national convention in this style? Guess what party it was? Um... I mean, because of Van Buren, you would say the Democratic Republicans, but I think it's a trick question because you asked it. So I don't know. Maybe I'm going to say the Whigs. The Whigs are going to have one next time. But like I said, they don't know they exist yet. Right. So, so they, they don't even have a name at this point. Uh, so yeah. maybe maybe it's the uh, maybe it's the new Republican Party. They're the second. OK. It's actually a party that we talked about last time, the Anti-Masons. Yeah. There you go. Completely forgot about those Anti-Masons. Yeah, and they choose a presidential candidate, and he just so happens to be part of a very special organization called the Masons. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that, and I didn't want to sound even more dumb, but I'm like, that, that has to be the irony of this statement, is that the guy that they nominated was a Mason. He was, and, and he didn't even hide it, and they didn't even care. Yeah, we just want power, whatever. It's crazy. Yeah. Um. So they pick uh, their candidate, and then uh, their candidate is a guy named William Wirt. Oh, sorry, a mason named William Wirt is who they choose to be their character. You know, you probably can't find a guy elite enough to run for president at this time who isn't a mason. One of the funny things that happened before they chose William Wirt, they really wanted someone else to be the nominee. His name escapes me. Rush, I think it might have been. So he didn't want to do it. And John Quincy Adams got real mad at him for not doing it. So John Quincy Adams offers to run as the Mason candidate, which if you're the anti-Mason party, which is a pretty small and significant party, you're probably thinking, hey... We're actually going to have a candidate who used to be president. That's amazing. No, they say, no, th no, thank you. <laughs> we, yeah. We're, we're it, good. It didn't work the first time. Right. Yeah, they don't. John Quincy Adams, they feel, is just too despised. So they go with <laughs> William Wirt. So um, then... The National Republicans hold their uh, convention, and they end up choosing Henry Clay to be the presidential candidate. Which is 
seems strange to me as well. I mean, I, I'm totally thinking about this just off the cuff, but it would seem like that, that the national Republicans would sort of split away from the Democratic Republicans on, you know, sectional geographical type lines. And you're thinking Northeast for these folks, but then they nominate a guy from Kentucky. Henry Clay is really a weird choice because in the last election, the corrupt bargain just destroyed John Quincy Adams. Yep. So why in the world they would choose the other guy who was involved in the corrupt bargain? I mean, there are only two people in the whole wide world involved in the corrupt bargain. They chose them both. I think maybe I think maybe uh, the brilliance finger quotes of choosing Henry Clay is they're saying okay it's a northern party but this guy is from the south so we win the politics in the north and we win on sectionalism in the south completely overthought it clearly <laughs> yeah then we have the Democratic convention and at the democratic convention it's super easy for them to pick their presidential candidate they pick andrew jackson but the interesting part is uh john c calhoun oh i skipped over this great john c calhoun story let me jump back to it yeah can let's we go like, back to it. can we can we tarantino back to that and then absolutely jump to the future it'll be like watching pulp fiction so i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna tell you that uh, Andrew Jackson wanted rid of the people on his cabinet who he didn't trust anymore and who had uh, played a major part in the Petticoat Affair. But he didn't want to fire them because he wanted to make them resign because there was still constitutional questionality over whether he could fire them without Senate confirmation. Yeah, so he wanted them to quit. Yeah, so he just wanted them to quit. So he got the Secretary of State and the Secretary of War, Martin Van Buren and John Eaton, to resign so that he could get everybody else to resign too, which Van Buren did. Probably Van Buren's idea. There's no record of that, but it would not surprise me in the least. Yeah. So Jackson tells Van Buren, look, you're going to quit, but here's what's going to happen. You are going to become an ambassador to England. I'm going to appoint you ambassador to England, and then you're going to come back, and you're going to be vice president. Under this net, when I'm elected again. Right, right. Next term, next term. So Van Buren gets, he quits, and he gets nominated to be what we just said, the ambassador to England. And in the Senate, half the senators vote yay on his confirmation, and half the senators vote nay on his confirmation. And is this partly because they're still mad about the whole bank thing? It's just, you know, yeah, I mean, it just breaks down in parties. They really, 
Uh, people in, on the other side really, really hate Martin Van Buren because he's a genius. They're the ones who nicknamed him the Little Magician. Uh, it comes down 50-50, the Senate being equally divided. The vice president votes in the negative, and the confirmation is defeated. So he didn't get so, it. Not only did he not get it, John C. Calhoun, who gets to, the vice president gets to break a tie if there's a tie in the Senate. John C. Calhoun used his tie-breaking vote to vote against Andrew Jackson's appointment. Oh, no. That's, that's at least the third strike. Yeah, that, that was strike four. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, but I forgot about that, so I did the three strikes thing. But now I'd I'd wish I'd have used a metaphor that worked better in fours. Um, we'll, we'll still go with it. Yeah, and n- nobody will care. Everybody will be cool with it. They'll understand four strikes. So uh, okay, now we got to Tarantino it back to the convention where uh, they choose Martin Van Buren to be vice president for uh with Andrew Jackson. Uh so we get to the actual election. It's mostly an election about the National Bank and about the use of the veto power and about whether or not Andrew Jackson has made himself king of America. So he's overstepped his power. He's trampled on the constitution. He's basically done what he wanted to do. Uh, yeah, allegedly that that is what he's done. But really, all he did was exercise a perfectly constitutional veto power. But that's how they're painting him. They're painting him as someone who doesn't care to follow the rules. He's going to do what he wants. He's thinks yeah. he's king of America. Yeah. Yeah, they say the veto is unconstitutional, which makes no sense. But that happens in politics all the time. They come up with a talking point that is just utter bullcrap, a total lie. But sounds believable enough, because who really knows? <laughs> so he unilaterally tried to to destroy the National Bank, and that's going to make all the farmers poor. So they're really going after the South with that, too. Yeah, that was Daniel Webster who came up with that line of, um, well, that particular talking point. Okay, I know this was a blowout, and I know Jackson got... 219 electoral votes. Um, Who came in second? Henry Clay comes in second, 49 electoral votes. Um, John Floyd from South Carolina, who's running as the nullification party candidate, wins 11. You can guess what state he won those votes in. (laughs) South Carolina. Oh, yeah. And then uh, William Wirt, the anti-Masonic party, wins the state of Vermont, and it's seven electoral votes. All Masons. Yeah, all, all <laughs> everyone who voted for him, every elector um, in the Electoral College, probably every one of them a Mason. It had to be. And so that's the election of 1832. Um, all these parties, the National Republican Party, uh, the Annie Mason Party, they're going to come together with some old um, 
some old school federalists, some other uh, state level parties, and they're going to form the anti-Andrew Jackson party, the Whigs. And the Whigs, in our next episode, the election of 1836, the Whigs are going to use the most messed up, unacceptable campaign strategy any party has ever used. Oh, wow. As far as I can I can remember. Is that a teaser? Are you going to leave us hanging? Yeah, that's a teaser. Okay. Well, there's definitely a reason to come back now. So what else? What else do we need to know about this election? Sounds like a blowout. Yeah, it was a blowout. I yeah. mean, yeah. Andrew Jackson, the people loved him. Yeah. Remember, they all showed up to D.C. for his inauguration. I'm sure, um, you know, if you, I'm sure per capita, there were more people at uh, Andrew Jackson's inauguration than at Trump's or Obama's or any other inauguration in history. We'll have to check the aerial photos to, to confirm that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, don't believe the people who post the ones the day before the inauguration. Yeah. It's empty. Look at this. Hey, well, there was nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's all I got for this time. Wow, it was fun, man. We did. I think we did a good job, and we actually did it way quicker when we don't have somebody like Scott running his mouth the whole time. I know. That was the one problem. Nobody said anything inappropriate. No, I know. And we didn't say very much funny either, which is part of the reason we have him on here. But still... We'll do another one soon when he's back with us. And, and until then, make sure you follow us. Uh, make sure you subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever you happen to use, Spotify. Also, follow us on Twitter. We're at Election and Beer. We also have Facebook, Election and Beer. All the action goes down on Twitter. Make sure you follow that. And tell your friends about it. Uh, and then go out and subscribe to Eddie's podcast. He's Politics for Patriots, subscribe to our podcast, Politic, and we'll see you next time. Yeah. The election of 1836. It's going to be fun. Ooh. Yep. We'll see you next time, Eddie. Thanks. Have a good one.